You're listening to Global Conversations. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Global Conversations podcast. My name is Kai and I'm delighted to be your host once again. Today, we'll be hearing from Professor Judith Teichman, a professor of political science and international development at the University of Toronto. She is a leading expert in Latin America politics. She has written five books on this topic and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. Today, we'll be talking about the very unfortunate Venezuelan crisis that is worsening year after year. We seek to understand what happened, what is happening, and and what will most likely happen in the future. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can follow us on Twitter at g-conversations and on Instagram at monkgc, M-U-N-K-G-C. You can also check out our website at www.monkgc.com where you can find loads of great content created by students at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Professor Teichman, thank you very much for being a guest on Global Conversations. Considering that Venezuela was one of the wealthiest countries in South America during the 1960s and 1990s, the current crisis appears to be even more shocking. Almost 90% of its population lived under poverty as of 2017. And today, Venezuelans can barely afford to buy anything, with the rate of hyperinflation skyrocketing over 4,000%. Professor Teichman, can you please give us a brief history of what happened and how we got there? Well, the history of Venezuela, the parts of the history that explain what's happening today really go back quite far. A great many people saw Venezuela during the 50s and 60s and into the 70s as good example of the operation of liberal democracy in uh, Latin America and in the global south. It seemed to be very stable politically. But in actual fact, there was a lot of very troublesome aspects of the trajectory that Venezuela has, has taken. One of the first points I should make is that as a Latin American country, Venezuela started out its history from a very difficult set of circumstances. And one was a Spanish conquest and the legacy of big landowners and concentrated land ownership and uh, masses of very poor peasants. And then the next, uh, I think, important aspect of, of Venezuela is the fact that by the time you get to the early 20th century, you have the discovery of oil. People in charge of the state and in charge of the economy are still very wealthy and there's still a huge gap between the rich and the poor. And so Venezuela embarks upon a trajectory of petroleum-led development in which the driving force of the economy is extraction from of petroleum from the economy and its exportation and then the distribution of revenues uh, amongst the population. But in all of this, there is a very substantial need for attention, first of all, to the rural poor and to the peasantry. Agriculture was virtually abandoned. Uh, what you see is mass migrations into the major cities, particularly Caracas. As long as petroleum was flowing and there was a modicum of government resources to distribute, the lid on political discontent was more or less maintained. Although 
I should preface my remarks by saying that even during the so-called period of Venezuelan liberal democracy, you had the rumblings of a great deal of unrest. You had demands for land redistribution. You had poor peasants who were not being properly looked after. You had disparities between rich and poor. As masses of people migrated into Caracas with a lack of attention to rural development, you had huge urban slums emerging with little attention to the living standards in those urban slums. There was actually a considerable degree of repression exercised during the 1960s, and this is something that people don't pay attention to, but I think it's quite important. Guerrilla movements in the rural sector were repressed. There were other forms of protest against urban unrest or protests by the urban poor. So this was not really a politically happy time for Venezuela. So by the time you get to the uh, early 1980s, and of course in the late 70s, you have the decline of petroleum prices, you have the rise of the debt crisis. And so the modicum of political control through a combination of co-optation, patron clientelism and repression that had been in effect in the 60s and 70s begins to wear very thin. And so you get the election of political leaders who then, as in all Latin American countries and most parts of the global South, embark on market liberalization. And that includes removal of subsidies. It includes the privatization of public companies, the removal of tariffs, all sorts of things that, as we know, impacted very negatively on the bottom half of the population. So by the time you get to the early to mid 80s, Venezuela is really entering into severe crisis. Its political leaders uh, carry out market liberalization despite massive protests. Uh, there is political repression. By the time you get to 1989, there is massive political repression, uh, known as the Cacarasco, in which the urban poor are protesting because of the removal of subsidies. They can't survive economically. They are repressed politically. And that it's at that point you see the rise of Hugo Chavez. Because the elements within the military who are required to carry out this repression really don't want to do it. Many of them are arise from the middle and lower middle class, and they understand that lower socioeconomic groups are indeed suffering. So then you get the emergence of the movement that eventually brings Hugo Chavez to power. And you get increasing polarization at this point. I mean, the polarization that you see in Venezuela is something that emerges very, very clearly by the time you get to the 1980s. It really is quite a predominant feature of politics. And one feature I want to emphasize about that polarization that I think political scientists don't often talk about is the racial aspects of socioeconomic exclusion. Venezuela is a racial hierarchy as well as a social class hierarchy. I don't know if you've noticed, if you look at the protests on the news clips of the Venezuelan crisis, you will usually see the opposition is composed, not so much now because the situation has become more complicated, but certainly by the, by the time you get to the 90s, the supporters of Hugo Chavez are darker skinned people. They're in the lower socioeconomic categories. The opposition is comprised of the descendants, of, basically the descendants of the Iberian conquerors, are white skinned European people. And there is a great deal of actual racial animosity as well as social class animosity here. So by the time you get to the 1980s, Hugo Chavez, there's actually a couple of attempted coups during the 90s, and he emerges as the leader of the poor. I mean, he is characterized in the mainstream media as a monkey. There are all sorts of racial epithets that are thrown against Hugo Chavez that relate very clearly 
to his racial identity as a mixed race person. And in fact, one of the basis of his political support is the many statements he has made that he is proud of his Indigenous and Black identity and that everyone else who has that identity should be very proud of it as well. So that kind of animosity, and I would say class hatred, was a part and parcel of the Venezuelan history, and it becomes very marked by the time you get to the 1980s. So that is the historical background. I don't know how much you're aware of what happened when Hugo Chavez was elected, but of course, um, this was an authoritarian regime. He was not a, a supporter of liberal democracy, although he certainly thought elections were important. But the, the niceties of liberal democracy really were not important to him. What was important to his leadership and to their mass base was improvement of living standards and a reinforcement of their racial cultural identity. Finally, the recognition that how they looked and who they were was important and that was something they could be proud of. I think that these were very important cultural components of support for Hugo Chavez. And of course, his impingement on private property infuriated the opposition, as did his cultural identification. And of course, during his period in power, this further polarized the situation. So that's in a nutshell, <laughs> the that's history it. of it all. <laughs> Thank you very much for the quick lecture, actually. Um, I would like to dive a little bit deeper on Chavez, please. Do you believe that while he was in power between 1999 and 2013, he was able to achieve his goals, fulfill his promises, and do more good than bad? Or was it the other way around? Yeah, that is a very tough one. It is a very tough question. When I think about Latin America, one thing I tell my students is please reserve judgment. <laughs> this is a part of the world that has had an extremely difficult history. I think that what's important here is to try to understand why this happened. I think in terms of socioeconomic improvement, lots of people's living standards improved during the Chavez years, at least between about 2006 and 2012. If you look at the figures, you see a substantial decline in poverty and a substantial decline in inequality. Now, I, I need to add, however, that this was petroleum-driven growth. And whenever you have economic growth, you are going to have some decline in poverty. And if you add to that some social programs, then, of course, it's going to be quite significant. But I think the question you're asking me, was this a long-term benefit for Venezuela? Absolutely. Yes. I think the answer to that question is the problem here was that Hugo Chavez was locked into a petroleum-led development trajectory. And there's a vast literature on what happens when you become dependent upon extractives. And the reality is that very few countries are able to change course and to use those extractives to improve living standards. And once you get into a, a resource-led development trajectory, it's very difficult to change course and to use that revenue in a way that builds institutions and that at the same time sign produces a reduction of poverty in the long term. So there's two things here. One of them is, of course, the failure to diversify the economy. Everyone says that if you're dependent on a resource, you should be diversifying your economy. Well, how many countries have actually done that? Botswana, maybe Chile to a lesser extent. It's very tough to do. And of course, Chavez, because of the extent of political polarization, he totally alienated the private sector. Now, the private sector wasn't going to cooperate with him anyway. But nevertheless, the private sector was not going to invest. So the chances of him diversifying the economy was small to nil. This was not going to happen in a, such a deeply polarized situation. 
if you are commodity dependent, you need to have the confidence of the private sector in order to diversify your economy. And that way, when the prices decline, you have backup of resources and you're able to grow in other sectors and so on. That didn't happen here. The other part of it is the institutional part of it. And again, I think that it's not very helpful to blame Chavez. I think it's probably more helpful to blame history. Chavez arose as a consequence of Venezuelan history. If it hadn't been Chavez, it would have been somebody else who was very similar. I think this was something that was probably going to happen anyway. As it happens, as once Chavez came to power, once he was elected, the opposition became increasingly angry and really relentlessly pushed him to leave power. They demanded referendums, one of which was very supportive, a second one less so. But the goal of the opposition was never to accept Chavez in power. The goal of the opposition was to remove Chavez from power. There was also a lot of external opposition, such as U.S. opposition. So in this context, you see Chavez becoming increasingly authoritarian. And he becomes increasingly authoritarian with the support of the people that were surrounding him who said, everything we have accomplished in terms of poverty reduction is going to be undone. Of course, it would have been undone anyway because there was no diversification. But nevertheless, this was the thinking. And it's something that's very common in Latin American politics, that when you have intense polarization, then one group fears that the other is going to overturn absolutely everything once they come to power. And oftentimes that's actually what happens. So you can understand what was going on here. So he does become increasingly authoritarian over time. He did talk at the beginning about real participatory democracy and set up local participatory mechanisms. But all the research on that pretty much shows that these didn't operate, except for the people that were enthusiastic Chavez supporters, they got to participate. But if you weren't, you know, the local mechanisms of participation did not work for you. And so the legacy of that deepening polarization, which arises from early polarization, is, of course, the kind of political and economic crisis you have today. Wow. Okay, I see. Thank you very much for sharing such insightful information, Professor Teichman. You briefly mentioned the difficulties in diversifying the economy of a country, and I'd like to dive a bit deeper into the oil industry and Venezuela. Still today, Venezuela is the world's largest oil exporter, producing 300 million barrels of oil a year which makes up for 95% of its exports and funds 50% of its social programs. Let's go back to 2014 when the current president, Nicolas Maduro, was elected. Oil prices at that time were still pretty high, averaging $93 a barrel. The following year, the price dropped by almost half to $48 a barrel. This is huge, to say the least. Professor Teichman, what happened between 2014 and 2015? Well, okay, so there's a, there's a number of things going on here. One, I go back to the lack of diversification. If you're an economy that depends entirely on oil, then trouble in the oil sector creates trouble in external revenues, and therefore you can't buy all the things you need, and therefore there's massive shortages. So the question is, petroleum prices, as I recall, began to, to slide around 2011. I didn't think that they were really particularly buoyant in 2014, but you might be right about that. But the other problem was growing corruption. I mean, when you have an increasingly authoritarian regime and access to petroleum resources, and when you have growing political opposition, then you have very often increasing amounts of corruption. So I think the allegation that the petroleum sector began to be inefficiently managed because of growing levels of corruption is, is true. However, you know, one of the things that Chavez did 
in order to maintain himself in power was that he shoved increasing resources into the military and as individuals became increasingly wealthy. So there emerged cartels of military leaders. There was also the emergence of drug trafficking as well in the latter years of Chavez and certainly under Maduro. So what you get is the emergence of cartels of extremely rich military men who, as a consequence of being allowed to become very rich, are even more supportive of authoritarianism because if they should lose power, then of course they're going to be prosecuted. And not only are they going to be prosecuted and jailed, but they're going to lose their wealth. I see. <laughs> so you have increasing mismanagement, but there's also the U.S. sanctions. Now there's a debate about how much impact the sanctions have had. There is a scholarly paper, which is authored, I believe, by Jeffrey Sachs, who's not, you know, a radical economist, as you know. <laughs> and that paper argues that the U.S. sanctions had very significant negative implications on uh, export earnings and therefore revenue flowing into Venezuela. And then there was counter arguments that refuted that paper that said, no, in fact, that is not true. But I think that we can safely say that the combination of sanctions in addition to mismanagement, and I mean, one of the other things that happened was that you have to remember that the State Petroleum Corporation, the folks working for it, the officials that ran it, were all middle class and all vehemently anti-Chavez. So, of course, Chavez had to remove them and put in his own folks. But his own people were not trained in running the company. They were not nearly as well trained or would not have managed it as well. So there's that part of the story as well. In opposition made it very difficult to manage the petroleum sector well. They were so intensely opposed. He had to remove them. He put in people that were probably a lot less competent. <laughs> so all of this contributed to the decline of export earnings. But of course, the real problem was a failure to diversify in the original trajectory of becoming so dependent on oil. In that case, Professor Teichman, do you believe that this market failure was a foreseeable one? And if so, is it safe to conclude that the government failed to take the adequate steps to prevent them, or at least to mitigate the consequences of such a crisis? You know, as I suggested, it is a, a story that that goes way back in history. I do not think it's a story of good and evil. I think it's a story, a difficult history and polarizing political struggles that have severe implications for both political stability and economic prosperity. So I would look at it that way. I mean, you could argue that going back to the early part of the 20th century, political leaders should have had more sense and should not have invited in foreign petroleum companies and should have shoved whatever resources they got into the development of the agricultural sector. You could say that. But I mean, I would make a couple of points here. One of them is that I think at that point in the early part of the 20th century, nobody realized the implications of what now is widely understood as a research course, and that you really have to be very proactive in government policies to mitigate this. And the other point I would make is that Brazilian history was all about, as I've said, concentrated wealth, concentrated land ownership, followed by petroleum dependence and concentrated economic wealth. And it was highly racialized as well. And so the political leaderships were not particularly attuned to taking measures that would incorporate their populations into a nationally integrated development enterprise. This is not 
what the leadership was about to do. And Venezuela is not alone in this. In the early part of the 20th century, political leaders tended to believe that their racialized populations were not good actors in development, that they would not be able to really contribute to national developments. And so in the early part of the 20th century, Venezuela and many other countries were supporting what they called the whitening of their population. We have to encourage immigrants from Europe because these are the only people that are going to really develop the country. The rest of the population is really not capable of contributing to national development. So this was the thinking at the time. And it was the thinking not just in Venezuela, but in many countries of Latin America with very nefarious development consequences. Considering the current backlash that President Nicolas Maduro has been facing, he still refuses to step down. Why is this? As well, even more interestingly, this week his 30-year-old son has announced that he will also be running for office. Is there something that we should look into here? Well, okay, Maduro is not Chavez. Chavez actually, he played fast and loose with many of the attributes of liberal democracy, but he did hold elections. And for the most part, those elections were probably not fraudulent. You know, I haven't seen a lot of evidence of the various elections that brought him to power being fraudulent. I think he did had a pretty solid base of support, but of course, near the end of his life, that basis of support did decline. I think Maduro is a very different animal. He lacks the charisma of Chavez. He does not have that strong base of support. So many ordinary Venezuelans, I think, have moved over to, well, I'm quite sure, have moved over to the opposition. They do not see themselves in the same way in Maduro as they did in Chavez. So Maduro is a very authoritarian figure. And as I've suggested, there is now enormous corruption at the highest levels of the military. And I think that the military is very, very reluctant to cede power because they know what will happen to them. I mean, there's a cartel within the military that's involved in the drug trade and it's siphoning off petroleum resources. And this group has become enormously wealthy. So they are not going to cede power. So what you have in Venezuela right now is a very corrupt authoritarian regime that has lost the elements of Chavismo that made it so very popular through most of the years during which Chavez was in power. So I think that what the Maduro regime wants to do is consolidate power, make sure it consolidates power and is not removed from power through any means that are available to it. So even though the situation is worsening year after year in Venezuela, leaders are not considering conceding power? During the earlier years of Chavismo, when Chavez was in power, he was supported by a lot of left-wing people who had been repressed during the Punto Fijo, the earlier period. A lot of people who wanted social justice and saw Chavez as somebody that would do this. And of course, in many respects, he did, although there were certainly great faults with what he was doing, but poverty did decline. Many of those people have left Chavismo. I mean, the proportion of the population that are still remain supporters of Maduro as a legacy of Chavismo is, I think, probably very minimal. That doesn't mean, of course, that they support the opposition. I mean, I think this is something we need to be clear on. My guess would be that if you went and talked to a Venezuelan living in a slum area of Caracas, they would say they absolutely hate the current government, but they're not too keen on the opposition either, because the opposition was in power for decades and decades, and they never got anything of what there was to get <laughs> during those years. <laughs> I actually think that Maduro will eventually leave power. I mean, I think one of the problems is that the opposition is very divided. I mean, if the opposition would uh, open the doors to social reform in a substantive way, and appeal to the dissolution Chavi Chavistas um, who have 
departed from Maduro, but really don't have a place to go. Um, and, and there was the construction of a national consensus on social and political reform. Then I think you would definitely get Maduro out of power. But there is no consensus, even among the consolidated opposition, which is not very consolidated, it's composed of a whole lot of groups, but it would need to expand and bring in more people um, and address the very uh, important concerns that Chavismo addressed and, and as a consequence was able to get popular support. Thank you, Professor. I now would like to ask you a question about the migration crisis caused by this humanitarian crisis. Roughly 5 million Venezuelans have left the country since 2014, 1 million of whom migrated to Colombia, its neighboring countries. Between 2000 to 2017, the number of Venezuelan migrants went from 93,000 to 421,000 in the U.S., with most of them living in Florida. Can you speak a little bit more about the brain drain of such migration patterns? You know, I mean, it is an astronomical and tragic situation because obviously people that are leaving are those who can afford to leave, or in other words, barely afford to leave because a lot of them are not particularly well off. But I would assume that there would have been a substantial proportion of them that were uh, middle class. So it does signify a very substantial brain drain from Venezuela. There's no question of that, which will have implications for uh, future economic growth um, and prosperity for sure. On that regard, Unfortunately, it is impossible not to talk about COVID-19 these days. To what extent did the pandemic exacerbate Venezuela's crisis? And what realities have been exposed? Well, that's a difficult question to answer. And one of the um, things that was happening for a while, I don't know whether it still is, was return migration uh, because Colombia totally shut down with COVID. And so a yes. lot of the Venezuelans that had gone to Colombia were working in the informal sector um, as small entrepreneurs, micro enterprises, and everything was shut down. They could no longer do that. And they lost whatever low paying jobs they had. So there was actually, as I understand it, some reverse migration back to Venezuela uh, because they couldn't survive in Colombia. Uh, that will obviously exacerbate the, the social crisis in Venezuela if there are people returning in a context in which there are um, the absence of medication and, and the hospital system can help people. Um, but one of the, the issues I, I would raise, it's not particular to Venezuela. Um, I think it's more generally in, in Latin America. One of the things we need to understand is that because of the differing uh, social contexts in Latin America, where people live in slums, and of course they still lived in slums under, under Chavez, they had a higher income and had access to education and to subsidized food, but they still lived in slums in which there are a high density. So the attempts to, uh, and the resistance in Latin America to shutting down economies, to force people to social distance is really not politically feasible or even doable. I actually wrote a blog post on this issue. And basically, I mean, there was a quote I included on the part of a street vendor in, um, in Mexico City who supported the, the outside world has viewed, you know, Opuesa Lobador's uh, lax attitude to controlling the COVID-19 crisis. This particular vendor said, well, I understand why he's not closing us down. You know, I'm going to die of starvation before I die of COVID because these are informal sector workers. They have no pensions. They have no 
access to any kind of support is really going to contribute to their survival. They need to work. And so the context of COVID is a, is a very different one because of the necessity of economic survival. Now, it certainly exacerbates uh, the tragedy of the situation because much higher numbers of die of COVID are proportionately in Latin American countries than elsewhere. But uh, the idea that, that governments aren't doing enough is, um, uh, you know, there's another side to, to that kind of an argument. So the COVID issue in Venezuela certainly exacerbates the misery, but it's not the main source of it, obviously, right now. The source of the, the fact that hospitals have not, not been equipped to operate properly, the lack of medicine, the lack of access to med- medical attention has been an ongoing problem. It becomes worse with COVID. And so that's just the reality, but it is, is in some respects the reality of every country in the region. Thank you, Professor. My follow-up question might be a little bit more unrelated. It's inspired from a class conversation that we had in global security yesterday. What should Canada's role be in this crisis, if it has any? I think Canada should just stay out of it. Uh, I know that Canada was uh, was a part of, I can't remember the name of this group of nations, the name escapes me in my mind right now, you probably know the name of it, group of nations that came together, I guess it was about a year ago, uh, supporting Guaido and demanding that Maduro leave power. Uh, You know, this exacerbates the problem because anybody in Venezuela who's sitting on the fence uh, with regard to support for Maduro, once the international community attempts to interfere, particularly global North nations, Latin Americans become angry because they have a long history of outside intervention and interference, and they don't like it. They they have not, uh, for the most part, been left alone to settle their own problems. So I think that international interference, and especially international recognition of Guaido, has actually exacerbated the problem. On the one hand, it has given the, uh, the, the opposition in Venezuela the belief that they don't have to negotiate because they've got all these international support. And on the other hand, it has, it has angered those in Venezuela who have a more nationalistic bent and who resent external interference in their affairs. So it has actually contributed to polarization and to the failure to solve the Venezuelan crisis. I think the international community, the best thing it could do would be to support a forum where the, and to encourage the two sides to get together to talk. Um, that has been tried, and I recognize it's been tried on numerous occasions, uh, and it hasn't worked. But, you know, the only answer is to keep trying, to keep attempting to negotiate a solution. But both sides have been um, have dug in their heels, and neither side believes it has to make much in the way of concessions. And I would just remind you of the way peace was arrived at in Colombia after, you know, decades and decades of civil war. Finally, Cuba hosted Um, a negotiation between the two sides. And Cuba did not try to interfere, although Cuba, you know, had probably more sympathy for the FARC than for the government. It said, look, we will provide the space, you work it out. And I think that's the only way it's ever going to be solved, because the only way that Venezuela will have political stability over the longer term is for the two sides to get together and work out a deal, and a deal that satisfies both sides, um, at least on the fundamentals. Professor, I feel like you've just answered my next question. I was going to end things on a rather positive note and ask you about potential solutions. Well, that's the, that's what I would say is the future solution. And when I was writing my, I wrote a various blog posts on Venezuela. And as I was doing that uh, in the midst of the height of, of all of this and the height of the international involvement, I said that international in, interference would just prolong it, that it was not going to be solved by supporting Guaido 
because the supporters of Maduro would dig in their heels. People on the fence would support him. Venezuelans, many of them do not want international interference in their affairs. I predicted that this would just go on and on until uh, the international community stops taking sides and came to terms with the fact that you need a negotiated settlement. Now, now that is going to be more tough uh, than it ever was, because um, if it had happened, you know, in 2014, for example, um, you might be able to get the military to move. But between 2014 and now, the military has become even more wealthy and more corrupt and less reluctant to cede power. And so the situation is how to get those people to come to any kind of agreement. You're going to have to agree that none of them will be prosecuted and none of them are required to pay back any of the wealth they've looted. I mean, that would be the only way to get them to the table. Had this process begun earlier, I think a better kind of agreement might have been possible. Do you foresee any timelines in place or should we really go one step at a time here? I don't. I think it's a very unhappy situation. Many people predicted this would be over by now because the situation was so absolutely dire. I do not see an end in sight uh, without a concerted effort negotiation. I mean, I, I think it would be, as a first step, the international community has to not recognize Guaido. He doesn't represent anybody, I don't, in Venezuela, really. Uh, maybe sectors within the opposition, but there's probably a great many Venezuelans that really wouldn't want him to be president for very long. So you need a, some sort of um, negotiated agreement between the two sides. Maybe Maybe a transition government that comes to power for a few months, led by Guaido, and then an election immediately held, that doesn't seem to be on the table anywhere right now. So you're not too optimistic that the current leaders are willing to cooperate or negotiate anytime soon? It does not appear to be the case, not as far as I know. There does not okay. seem to be movement on. The opposition is very stuck on its position. And of course, as I've suggested, the Maduro regime probably even more so now uh, than it ever was for the reasons I've, I've described. Professor Teichman, the blog that you've created is doing pretty well, actually. I saw that it's ranked top 20, top 15 worldwide in Latin American affairs, which is quite impressive. Where can we find it and follow you? Yeah, you can just type in Judith Teachman blog and there it will be in the Google search. You don't even have to remember the, the, the web uh, URL. Perfect. Professor Teichman, those were all the questions that I had for you today. Do you have any concluding remarks or comments? Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And this was a lot of fun. I quite enjoyed it. Professor Teichman, once again, thank you so much for being a guest today. I've learned a lot. I really enjoyed this conversation, and so did many, many of our listeners, I'm certain. We'll keep in touch, and I wish you all the very best. Keep well. Stay safe and take care. Bye.